Thank you for being uh, patient with us as service times are changing and a new check-in system. There's just a lot of things going on, but we don't want to lose sight of what this is all about. And this is the name of Jesus. It's the only reason that we can do this thing. Uh, the, everything is moving toward the glory and, and the magnification of this beautiful name of Jesus. And that's what we've been seeing so clearly in the book of Romans. We've been studying through this book, and we are coming to kind of, think of Romans as kind of like a tent. And at the top of the peak of the book is Romans chapter 8. This is really the climax where the whole book is building toward. And then today is kind of this grand crescendo, the climax of the climax, as he kind of wraps up chapter and so excited to hear uh, from our God uh, through the text this morning. So Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 31 through 39. And we're going to be asking ourselves this qu- question this morning. What is the biggest threat to the spread of the gospel? What is the biggest spread, the threat, to the spread of the flourishing of, of, of Jesus' followers, of, of what the Great Commission is, what we've been called to do to make disciples of all nations? What's the biggest threat to that? And you know, in the first few decades, of, of, right after Jesus went back to heaven, it sure looked like it was going to be the Roman Empire. And it looked like this whole Jesus movement might not even get off the ground. In fact, the very Jewish Christians uh, that Paul's writing to in this letter had been kicked out of Rome because of their worship of Yahweh and had only recently returned as they're hearing these words that, that Paul wrote. And then, of course, we know Nero. Emperor Nero takes power shortly after that. And the dude had a vendetta against the people of God. And he did everything in his power to try to squash this movement. He'd throw people into prison, and that was like best-case scenario on Nero's watch. There were Christians who were covered in the skins of wild beasts and torn apart by dogs. There were Christians who were lit on fire as human torches and were lighting the streets of Rome. And it sure looked like this thing may not even get off the ground. But you know what happened? 200 years later, you fast-forward. And Jesus' followers are all over the city of Rome. And the Roman Empire has fallen. Nero, he dead. Jesus is still alive and he's still on the throne. And since then, no other empire has been able to stop it. No other, no, no other. Communism hasn't been able to stop the gospel movement. Terrorism hasn't been able to stop the Jesus movement. Satan hasn't been able to stop it. Secularism, no dictator, no power. We, what are we seeing in, in Christ alone? No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand, can ever stop what the Lord Almighty has began. And what we see here is the words of Jesus coming true. He said, I will, there's a promise word, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the unshakable plan and promise of our God. And what we're going to see in the passage this morning is he says this, in all of these things, in all the efforts in human history, whether it be spiritual powers or other humans trying to squash this movement of the gospel spreading, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. What a promise we've been given in this word. What a security we've been given in the word. But the question then today then is therefore, what is the biggest threat to the gospel spreading? What's the biggest threat to people delighting in Jesus' name? And for that, we want to look at our text. I'm going to look at a couple things this morning. First of all, a qualification that Paul puts out here. He says in verse 31, Romans chapter 8, what then shall we say to these things? Now we've been learning as we've been walking through. Context is important, right? And we always say, what's the therefore? What's the therefore? Very good. Man, the morning service was better than you guys, and they had to be more tired. Come on, wake up. 
What context? What things? What things? What shall we say to these things? Well, what things are you talking about? I think he's looking back to not just Romans 8, but everything he's penned up until this point. We remember that the whole heart of what we've been saying in this book, we believe God is trying to tell us through the book of Romans about the power of the gospel. God, the power of God's plan to rescue a people out of this human race, to rescue us from our sin. And and we've walked through this in the outline. Remember, we looked at the first three chapters, which I'll give you the cliff notes. I stink right? You stink. That you and I, born into this world, dead on arrival, we are helpless, hopeless rebels shaking our little fists at God, trying to defiantly be gods of our own universe, not worshiping the God of the universe. And because of that, we are guilty of sin and deserve nothing but the wrath of God. That was, the, that was how Paul started this letter, but then it doesn't stop there. He talks about God's plan to rescue mankind, and what Paul, what Paul puts forward is that God had this plan to bring us back into right relationship with God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And now in Christ, our filthy rags have been removed and we've been washed, we've been cleaned, and we come in these beautiful, pure, spotless, white linens dressed in the righteousness of Jesus, acceptable before the throne of God. And as if that wasn't good news enough, he says, that's not it. That's just the start of the plan. I'm just getting going. And then he goes to Romans 6 through 8, and he talks about our growth as believers. And there's this beautiful plan that God has for us. It's not just to get us to heaven. There's this comprehensive plan that he knew in your life before you ever took a breath. And he kind of rolls that out in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And he talks about the way that he put the very spirit of God in us. And this spirit, God's own personal presence in our lives, empowers us to live a life of freedom from sin and death and to be who God has called us to be. And he said he's given us the Holy Spirit as we're groaning here on this earth, waiting for that incomparable glory that's to come. This Holy Spirit prays for us, intercedes for us according to the will of God. And last week we discovered what is that will of God for my life, that I can know that everything in my life is moving toward this one direction, not the boy band. What, will, what is God's will for our lives? That we would be glorified, meaning we would look just like Jesus. This is the whole plan. And this is the thing that he's using all things for in our lives to work together for. Even when there's the puzzle piece in your life, maybe today, that you go, I don't see the picture on the box. I don't see how, how in the world what you've given on my plate today could fit in for your good to make me more like Jesus. That we have to, by faith, believe that all these things, through the power of Jesus, are working toward his perfect end. And that perfect end is that we would fully bear the image of Jesus. That as we look to him by faith, we become more like him until that day when we look at him eyeball to eyeball and perfectly reflect the image of Jesus, which magnifies his name. We said he's the firstborn, the preeminent of all creation, that everything is about the lifting high and magnifying of that beautiful, wonderful, powerful name of Jesus that we just sang about. And then he uses the word glorified. He says, those he has justified, those he's already declared right in God's sight, he has glorified. And we said last week, that's past tense. That if you have been saved, if you've been declared right in God's sight, that this promise, he, he who began a good work in you, will complete it. That we are as good as glorified. The God who is outside of time, he says, the perfect plan I have for you, it's as good as done. <laughs> and we can trust he's using everything toward that end. So what's Paul's conclusion? Look at all these things. What shall we say to these things? Here's my conclusion. 
He says, if God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? You notice, see what he's saying here. If, Paul says, if God, the creator, the most powerful being in the entire universe, if he loves me, if he has rescued me, if he has declared me right in his sight and declared that one day, this is the ending, that I will perfectly reflect the image of Jesus and live in his presence forever, he says, what in heaven or on earth could possibly thwart that plan? If God is for me, we echo the words of Jeremiah, who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop him? I mean, think about it. Say it out loud. Who's winning an arm wrestle match with God? Who's stronger than God? I mean, and I picture people, maybe it's Satan or another human who would have the audacity to tango with the God of the universe. Like, who's walking up to God like in the wild, wild west? Doodaloo. Chink. 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 Those are my spurs. And I look God, somebody, looks, somebody would look God in the eyes and go, this universe isn't big enough for the two of us. And I've come here to thwart you. Jehovah ain't gonna gyra no mo. I'm here to snatch Justin out of your hands. And God, like, he gets down and he looks and I picks that person out. <laughs> oh, you were serious. <laughs> right? Like, who, I mean, who, who's, who is going to stop him, right? Who's stronger? Who's more powerful? Who is more in charge and sovereign of the known universe? No one. But let's be real. Every one of us as believers face doubts every day. We face insecurities and fears every single day. No Christian is walking around with this permo smile going, sufferings, not knowing the future, do to do everything's good, I believe in God the sovereign, right? Like we all have moments. In fact, sometimes it feels like the majority of the time that we're walking with fear and insecurity and doubt. And so we need to ask some questions here. And Paul's gonna, he's gonna make sure that there are no cracks in this beautiful, unshakable plan and promise of God. So we asked some questions. And the big question we need to ask here is, what is the basis for being more than conquerors? If in verse 37, he says that in everything that we face, we're going to be victorious, we're actually going to be more than victorious, what's the basis for this? What, what is the basis for our confidence in this victory that God guarantees for us? And so out of this main question, he's going to ask a series of three questions here that I think each of us face and, and ask ourselves almost on a daily basis. The first of which is, who can be against us? Who, who, can, who can be against us? Verse 31, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, now we know, we just said it, on paper, we know there's no one stronger than God. We know there's no one who's more in charge than God. So I actually think the real question for us here is not who could be against God, but it's actually, is God for me? The question we have to settle in our hearts is, God actually in my corner? Can I trust him? Because if I can, then clearly nobody else is going to be able to stop what he's said that he's going to do in my life. So I believe the, the answer to the question, what is the biggest threat to the gospel? I believe it's our own unbelief. It's our own ability, our own failure and refusal to accept and believe the promises that God has declared to us in his word. And we all know how much easier it is to lose trust than to gain trust. And many of us, if not most of us, have experienced so much loss in our lives, so much betrayal of trust, and maybe for you, it's been a wayward spouse. Maybe for you, it was a broken promise. Maybe for you, it was a backstabbing friend who you thought you could trust. 
For many of us, we've had unmet expectations in our lives that we thought God was going to pull through in a very specific way, and he did it. And now we are terrified to give our hearts to another human being, let alone God. I think the biggest deterrent to the good news spreading has been our own refusal and fear to receive from God what he wants to freely give us because we don't trust what he's saying to us. And many, many people over the course of human history have hurtled toward a Christless eternity because of it, because of unbelief. But because every single one of us faces insecurities, doubts, and fears, is God for me? Paul is going to write some words to us to remind us and encourage our hearts of the truths that our anxious souls so desperately need to hear. Listen to these beautiful words. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? Think about this for a moment. Imagine your kid comes up to you looking like this. He's just having a rough day. And he goes, Daddy, Daddy, please tonight, when it's time to go night-night, would you please let me sleep inside? Like, what? Yeah, would you please let me sleep in my bed tonight? Would you please not make me sleep out in the rain in the, in the yard? And you're like, okay. The next, and, and tomorrow morning when I wake up, Daddy, could you please make sure that when I go to school, I'm clothed? Like, I don't want to go to school naked, Daddy. And when I get to school and I open that little, that little uh, Paw Patrol lunchbox, and I pray that in that would actually be food, right? That you wouldn't, that you, that you, that, that you'd have a lunchable in there for me. I love the ones with the ham and cheese. Please provide for me my basic needs, Daddy. And you're, and, and you think, I mean, you're looking at your kid and you're going, what? Like you think I'm going to, I mean, your mom went through the most painful, most excruciating experience imaginable to mankind to bring you into this world, but now I'm not going to give you a lunchable? Now I'm not going to give you a bed to sleep in tonight? Like, of course I'm going to provide for you and your basic needs. Now we know, man, there are kids even in our own community that don't necessarily have some of those needs met. We don't take that for granted, let alone in third world. But what good parent is going to hold any basic necessities back for their own children? And in Matthew 7, Jesus, he drew this parallel. He goes, or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Can you imagine that? Hey, Daddy, can I have a piece of bread? And you chuck a rock at his face, right? Like, OCS is going to be calling you pretty soon. Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent here? <laughs> like, that's a, what in the world? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who's in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? He says if, if even sinful parents will typically give the most basic good gifts to their own children, how much more will our perfect, holy, heavenly Abba Father Give every good thing that you need, not that we want, not that we demand, not on our timetable, but that you need. You think he's going to hold back from you? No, no. In fact, not only does he not hold back, he says he gave you his son. He gave you his son. And think about this. If in the greatest act of love ever demonstrated, God was willing to sacrifice his own son, I'm going to lay down my own life for you while you're my enemy. I mean, think about that. What, what, what's a list of things that you would sacrifice, people that you would sacrifice your own child for? Probably a short list if it exists at all. And he says, I'm willing for my own son to die for you. And you think I'm going to hold back on you now? 
You think there's any need of yours that I'm not going to meet? I mean, say it out loud. I'm going to come to God tomorrow and be, God, I need wisdom in this situation. And he goes, no. You've crossed the line. Yes, I let my son be brutally murdered in your place, but I'm not going to give you peace today. I'm not going to give you the strength to get through the day. I'm not going to give you the things that you need that I've already promised you in Christ. If he gave us Jesus, what in the world would he hold back from us? He freely gives us all things. Not only does he give them to us, but it says he graciously gives them to us. That word grace, unmerited favor, free of charge. You didn't earn this. I'm giving it to you because I love you, which is good because there's not a single thing that we could earn based on our own performance as sinners. I'm freely giving it to you. You can't earn it. Again, think about your own kid. Imagine your four-year-old is missing. You guys can't find him. Where in the world is he? Turns up, you find out somebody found him down at the job center. You're like, why is my four-year-old at the job center? Well... He comes to you, you go, you go find him. What are you doing here? Well, Dad, I'm trying to earn my keeps, right? That roof's not going to put itself over our heads, right? Inflation these days, do you, you know the price of a chicken nugget, right? I got I to gotta work for some stuff, Dad. I got to start pulling my own weight around here. So I've decided I'm going to fly at McDonald's, right? And your four-year-old says, I'm going to work. I'm going to pull my weight. And he goes, son, son, you can't earn these things. This is not on you to pay for them. Plus, this is highly illegal. <laughs> You're way underage. This is, these are free gifts for me because you're my boy, because I love you. How much of our lives are spent begging for God to give us things that he's already freely promised to give us in Jesus? And we're trying to earn, we're trying to earn his approval and his acceptance, earn his favor, earn his good gifts. He says, you can't, man. It's a free gift. I want to give them to you because you're my boy. You're my girl. You're my child. So when the Father doesn't give you something that you ask for, we got to know, according to this promise, that it is not him holding out on you. That it is not a lack of love or concern for your needs. If God is saying no, we've got to trust that he sees the picture on the box and we only see the puzzle piece. And I know these truths, right? I could answer this correctly on a, on, a, on a test. But the way I live demonstrates that I don't really believe it. So what do I do? I start looking for love in all the wrong places. And because I don't believe God's going to provide, I start looking for it in other relationships. We can start looking for it in substances. We look for it in food. We can look for it in pornography. We can look for it in our own ability to do ministry well or to be successful at our job or to make enough money or whatever it is that we're looking for. If we want a life of joy, a life of peace and satisfaction, it will only be found when we settle this question once and for all, is God for me? Because if he is for me, there's nothing, nothing in this world that can be against me. It's the first question. Second question, who can condemn us? Who's against us? No one. No one. Then who can condemn us? Who, who can condemn us? He says in verse 33, who shall bring a, any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who will bring a charge? Now listen, this is not because somebody can't bring a charge against me, right? I got plenty of charges that could be brought against Justin Blake Frankino, the sinner, Right? You go on my court view records, I've only got a few speeding tickets, doing pretty good there, doing pretty good there. But I got a whole list of things that I did just last week that would totally justify God sending me to hell 
for eternity. If we were to take all the thoughts of your mind, to take all the, the intentions of your heart, and if we displayed them up on this PowerPoint, would you even want to stick around and watch it? No, I, I know I wouldn't. I'd walk out those doors and I'd never want to come back. The shame and self-hatred of who I am and, and what I've done, plenty you could charge me over. So why does he say here that no one can bring a charge? Who can bring a charge? Who can condemn? Look what he says in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who can bring a charge against us? Because although I'm guilty, although I am unclean before the Lord, I have been declared right in God's sight, not by my own doing, but by the one-time, good-for-all-time sacrifice of Jesus on my behalf. And any charge, Paul says, that's brought against me, we have Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. He uses the word interceding, going between. He's like our defense attorney. And anytime I sin, and someone else, my, my own self, or another person, or Satan, wants to try to charge me, accuse me, there is Jesus whispering into the ear of the good judge, already paid. That's what he said on the cross, to tell us die, paid in full. There is no condemnation. Discipline, yes. Natural consequences for some of our own stupidity, all the time. Condemnation, who can condemn us if God is for us, if Jesus has declared us right? Last question, who, who can separate us? Okay, so if God's in our corner, Jesus is in our corner, and we know that, is there anybody else? Is there any other human that could bring a charge? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Now, most of the world is a lot more familiar with famine and nakedness than, than we are. These are things that in a first world country we take for granted every single day. In addition to that, he talks about persecution. Now here, particularly, this context, as he's talking about persecution, this is in the name of Jesus. For people who are preaching the gospel and being persecuted because of it. Listen, it's not persecution to sit in those construction lines at K Beach. Like, I know that's rough for y'all, but like, that's, that's, not, that's not the context here. That you were at Kaladis and they messed up your order. I wanted two straws, right? Blessed are the persecuted right? This is not, that's not what he's saying. He's saying for those who have given up their lives to declare the name of Jesus when someone else told them to stop, and because they didn't, they killed him. But I know that the one straw can be rough. I understand that. We live in a time of relative peace and prosperity in the United States. It was, it was paid for by people who went before us. But the religious freedom that we have, listen, is the exception in human history, not the norm. In fact, there was a, a study done recently by the, uh, the, uh, the, global Christ the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. And, and this is what they saw back in, from 2005 to 2015. So this is very recent past that we saw 900,000 Christians killed for the sake of Christ. That is 90,000 people a year. The very man who penned the words of the letter to the Romans was killed because of what he believed, the hands of the Roman Empire. And it did not separate him from the love of God. 
who, who can stop the Lord Almighty? Will those who kill Christians be able to thwart God's plans? No. In fact, he says, in all these things, in all these things, in all the persecution, in all the suffering that is experienced around the world, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. This phrase, it's a Greek word, which is long and, and hard to pronounce. So I'm not even going to go there. I uh, didn't go to seminary. Uh, the word hyper means super. The word Nike, and you probably heard that. I got it on my shoe today. It's the goddess of victory. So what he's saying here is we are hyper victors, super victors. Or as Google Images gave me this fun little nugget, we are Christian superheroes, right? I don't know what in the world we need. Uh, yeah, the world needs Jesus. Um, those who are being tortured and killed for the sake of Christ do not just limp into heaven. They don't just barely make it. He says, you are more than conquerors. You are super victors, surpass, surpassing victory for those who are in Christ. I was thinking about this with our own So High football team around here. These guys don't just win games, they dominate. The last 15 years, they have more rings than I've got fingers. Uh, they had this 59, this had 53 at this point, but they ended up winning 59 games in a row, uh, which was at, up until this, the first game of this season when they lost. That was one of the longest uh, winning streaks in the nation. Yesterday, right here in Solana, they played Service, who's like four times their size, and they beat them 57 to 13. Come on! That's not just a victory. That's a crushing Right? That's a domination. And what he's saying here is Jesus doesn't just squeak one out at the end. Like he barely beats Satan. Jesus, in Christ, we are more than conquerors. Jesus' victory in this world is overwhelming. It's beyond comprehension what he's done. Now, the question is, what does that conquering look like? Like, how did Christianity defeat Nero and Rome in the first century? And what does it look like for us today to be more than conquerors? Well, typically in sports, the team mascots um, are supposed to strike fear in the hearts of the opponents, right? Like, we got a jaguar here who's looking all fierce, and this raptor who's tearing up this basketball. We got lions, we got tigers, we got bears. You guys are good. All right, now you're woken up. All right, you knew that one, but not the, the Christian one we said earlier. Great. Um, Paul, you know what Paul says who are conquering mascot is? He says it's a sheep. That's what's supposed to strike fear in the hearts of opponents, a lamb that's been killed. Look at what he says in Psalm, he's quoting Psalm 44, and he says this, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, Paul, this does not look like super victory to me. This does not look like being more than a conqueror. Jesus left for us the model, both of who the real enemy is. Listen, other people, flesh and blood, they are not the enemy. No human is. God loves them. The enemy is sin. The enemy is the lies of the devil. This world system, that's what we're fighting against. And what does it look like to be more than a conqueror against sin and death? Jesus, again, showed us the battle. I love to show us the model. I love the song. We sang it last week, The Lion and the Lamb. He says, our God is a lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. How did Jesus fight our battles for us? When he came to this earth, listen, he did not come with a sword mowing down the enemy, did he? Jesus didn't kill a single person while he was here. 
What did he do? He came as a lamb, led to the slaughter, and was actually mown down by the enemy. He laid his life down for us. Victory through what seemed like defeat. Life from death. He says, you want to follow me? You want to be more than a conqueror? And be willing to lay your life down for the sake of other people. Die to self every single day. You want to be the greatest of all in the kingdom? Be a servant. And the reason that Jesus' disciples are spreading like wildfire still to this day, and that the Roman Empire has come and gone, is not because the Christians went on crusades on Nero. The crusades were a bad idea. That's not what Christian victory looks like. It's because they were willing to trust that their God was for them and to lay their lives down for his cause and to preach the gospel even when it meant death for them. Tertullian, he said it this way, one of the older fathers of our faith, he says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We multiply whenever we are mown down by you, talking to those who oppose Christianity. The blood of Christians is the seed. And we've seen this to be true the entire, ever since Jesus left the first time and until he comes back, we see that the gospel spreads the fastest where the persecution is the greatest. You know where it spreads the slowest? It's countries that are most prosperous, like ours. It's been said that prosperity is the biggest enemy to the gospel, not adversity. Places where people are willing to put their lives on the line for the gospel and are called to do so day in and day out. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Man, if you want to let your faith be stimulated, listen to the stories of men and women willing to trust their God, and their God did not fail them. Persecution did not separate them from God's love. In fact, it spread it. So no, no, persecution from other people cannot thwart God's plans, cannot separate us from his loving arms. And then he says, in this grand climax to this verse, he says, the answer, here's the answer. Can anything separate us from God? Can can anybody condemn us? Can anybody rightly bring a charge against us? Can anyone stand and accuse or condemn us in Christ? No. And this is his conclusion. For I am sure, I am convinced that what? You know the verse. Neither death nor life. Now we could stop right there because that pretty much sums everything up, right? If dying, if, if, if through death we can't be separated from God's love and nothing in this life can separate us from God, that's everything, right? Living or dying. In fact, not only does dying not separate us from God's love, physical death for us is a homegoing. Paul said in Philippians 1, man, I'm torn because living here on earth, there's a lot of fruitful ministry, but if I die, it's better for me because I got to go be in the presence of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. No, death can't separate me from God. It actually brings me home to God. He says, nor angels, nor rulers, or powers, which I'm bringing up a line to make them fit together, because this word powers in, in context was a spiritual power. It's the word dunamis, or dynamite. Power. Spiritual powers. And do you remember, that takes us back to the word. Click on the hyperlink. It takes us back to Romans chapter 1, our theme verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. Why? For in it is the pow- power, the power, the dunamis of God. 
unto salvation. God's saving power is greater than any other power in the known universe. Whether you can see it or you can't see it, spiritual or physical, cannot, cannot overpower God's power of salvation. Nor things present, nor things that come. He's going to talk about time and space. Nothing today, nothing that happens today, no event in your life can separate you from God's love, and nothing tomorrow. We don't have to be afraid of tomorrow. And then also space. He says, neither height nor depth. Which reminds you of Psalm 139. He said, where can I go to hide from your spirit? If I go to the highest place in heaven, you're there with me. If I go to the lowest place of Sheol or hell, you are there with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to be afraid. Why? Because you're there with me. There's nowhere I can go that's too far from you. Nor anything else in all of creation, which is everything, right? Because nothing was made that has not been made by Jesus. John 1.3. So that sums it up. He says there's nothing that has ever been created, nor anything that ever could be created. It will be bigger and more powerful than me to pry you away from the love that I have for you. And he sums it up by saying this, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this phrase, in Christ Jesus our Lord, this is the clincher here. Because God loves the whole world, right? John 3, 16, God loves everybody. But sin separates us from a relationship with God. This promise is not for everybody. This is only a promise that applies to those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, if you are in Christ you are one, and there's nothing, nothing, nothing that can separate you from him, from my love for you. But here's the reality. The crux, the crux of you and I experiencing the joy of the truths of these passages, the security of God's plan to finish what he started in our lives, comes down to how we finish the following sentence. God loves me because. How do you finish that sentence? Not, not the Sunday school answer, but what you actually believe, which is evidenced by the way that you live. What do you believe? And I was thinking about this for myself, and you know, it's been, a, it's been an exciting time to be, you know, part of this church, and God just continues to grow the church in leaps and bounds. Like, you all are coming in. I don't even know half of you. I don't even recognize you. It's been exciting. We've doubled services. Things are growing. It's, it's been a cool thing to be a part of, but I'll tell you what happens. I'll tell you what happens in my heart how easily I start to attach my worth, value, validation, grounds for God to love me on my performance. And if I'm honest, there are times when I'm going to say, God, you love me because of how many derrieres are sitting in these folding chairs every Sunday morning. God, you love me because I did a good job preaching this week. God, you love me because of how hard I tried. Implying what? I remember, man, a couple weeks before the service started, I was praying, kind of wrestling with some of this in my own heart, and, and I heard God say, not, not audibly, but, but, but this, this sentence got planted into my brain. I said, Justin, do you realize that there's never another single new person that walks through those doors if your church never grows again? In fact, if it completely falls apart and they kick you out, there's nothing that you could do to make me love you any less. And you realize that if you became a megachurch, 
Like you out church change point in Anchorage. There's nothing that you could do that would cause me to love you more than I do right now in this moment. Because the reality is, God's love for us is not based on our performance. He says, I love you because I created you. I love you because I am love. I love you not based on what you did and who you are. I love you on the basis of what Christ did and who he is in you. There was nothing you could do to earn my love in the first place, and therefore there is nothing you can do to unearn my love. And if we believe these words of Romans 8, there's nothing left for us but joy. Brothers and sisters, we should be the most joyful people on the planet if we come to terms and and understand and believe that God is for us. If my God is for me, then I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to doubt. I have nothing to be insecure about because I trust the promises of God for me. So it all comes down to the question, do we believe that he really is for me, that he loves me, and that nothing can separate from me? Because if God is for us, who who can be against us. The joy and peace in your life that you experience every day rests on the way you answer this question. Do you believe that God is for you? Father, I know my own heart. I know these things to be true, but I also see in my heart, according to the way I live, that so often I doubt you. And Father, I'm looking to other things other things to satisfy me, other things to give me what I think I need because I fundamentally fail to believe that you are for me and that you are a good God who will never refuse a good gift from his child. That I don't have to be worried about food and clothing and shelter and validation from other people. Your eyes on the sparrow. If you're going to meet the if you're going to meet the needs of the flowers in the fields and the birds in the sky, how much more are you going to be good to us, your children? That you're going to finish what you started. And that in all these things, we're going to be more than conquerors. Father, teach our hearts to believe these truths because they are so prone to wander. And Father, I don't, I don't know what puzzle piece our brothers and sisters are in this room or looking at this morning and, and not being able to see how they fit into your picture. Lord, we have a limited, finite point of view. But give us the grace to trust these words that if you're for us, there is nothing that can be against us. There's no one who can condemn us. No one can bring a charge against us. No other person can stop us. And no matter what we face, no matter what comes our way, you're going to be with us. You're going to get us through it. And not just squeak us by, but that we will be super victors, more than conquerors through Christ. Father, because of that, I pray that we would be obedient to follow wherever you lead us. And that we would be willing, because all of our needs have been met in Christ, to freely lay our lives down for our other people in this community and wherever it is that you call us to go. That we would be willing The way you call us to be victors is to be sheep led to the slaughter. And that we would be willing to lay our lives down for our family members, for our friends, for our coworkers, for the unbelievers that you put in our path. That we don't have to spend any more time worrying about our own needs being met. 
that we've freely received and now we can freely give. May we be a people who follow you wherever you take us, knowing that in all these things, you're for us. We are more than conquerors. It's in the conquering, never-failing name of Jesus that we come and that we pray these things. Amen.